This was an incredible week. We had uh, right around 50 kids come and from various places um, all over the city, a lot from our neighborhood here in Greenfield, uh, which was a lot of fun to host them and kids that we have seen um, in school at Greenfield K-8 and then just other places, Greenfield baseball and whatnot. So it was a great time. Uh, the the gospel was proclaimed to the rooftops this week, and so that's just a, such a blessing, and to see it done through our, our, our youngest. We got a, had a chance, as you saw in one little picture, we had actually had a littles class where we had some like one-and-a-half-year-olds up to three-year-olds, and they were just, you talk about energy, man, they were in it every single day. So, best Sunday ever so far. All right, let's... Let's get rolling. So we're in our last week of our Inspired series, which has been our summer series. We've gone through some of what at times can be, I don't want to say the lesser books of the Bible, but the books of the Bible that aren't as closely paid attention to as maybe the Gospels and some of Paul's writings. And have had a great time doing that and unpacking some of these things this year. We started out our series, uh, David started us out, just sharing with us about the Holy Spirit. And the statement there was that Scripture is spirit-inspired and God's people are spirit-indwelled. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible is the only book ever written where you will read it and you actually have the author inside of you while you're reading it. And so it just makes it this very unique text. Uh, we moved on and Tyler took us through uh, the eyes of John, and we were in First John, we are able to know the love of God and can grow in our rest of this love as we abide more in him, as we cling more to him, which was a theme we heard a lot. Uh, then Zach shared with us through the eyes of Peter. In First Peter, we see that we are urged to become who we already are in Christ. We are, we are to urge to become who Christ has already made us, and then we met one of the half-brothers of Jesus through David, and it was a solid challenge that Jude gave us. From Christian to another Christian is actually when we challenge each other, it's a demonstration of love. We love each other when we challenge each other. We love each other when we test what's being said and don't allow false prophets and false teachers to have free reign. And then last week, the other brother, half-brother of Jesus is in Scripture, James. And James told us, abide by the law of liberty, the law of freedom, to be a doer, but you have to do that after humbly receiving, humbly receiving the truth. And so that's where we're, we're at. Well, today we get a special guest. Every concert seems to have a special guest, especially concerts in big places like Pittsburgh. And so our special guest today is the Apostle Paul. And before we, we jump into that, the one thing I would just want to share with you, I, I love fixing things. I've told you all that before. Um, I make my family say all the time whenever I fix something that Richard's boys can fix and the expectation is that they say anything. They never say anything. They always say, as Rachel just said, almost anything. All right? And I'm like, stop. That one time. gum. So, but I like to fix things. And so I, I got on the whole, like, HGTV, like, flip houses type thing kind of early. I come from a family um, that had some, some houses that we used to work on growing up. I am the son of a handyman. 
And so I enjoy like making things new, like taking something old and rehabbing it. And so one of my favorite shows is Fixer Upper. I, I like uh, Chip Gaines as crazy as he is. I just like his personality. He's just kind of funny and he makes me almost seem normal. Um, and then Joanna is just incredibly talented. So, you know, that Fixer Upper show is fun when they take something that is run down that just is it should be knocked down, and you just polish it and polish it and polish it, and something that's seemingly dead becomes new. Well, today, as we look at the Apostle Paul, we actually get to see what some people say is actually the Bible's greatest fixer-upper. Um, the Paul, Paul, this guy Paul, who became, came to be known as the Apostle Paul. He is said now to be the greatest missionary and church planner that the world has ever seen. He alone is responsible for 20% of the words in the New Testament of the Bible. And over, or almost half the New Testament books. Just under half the New Testament books. But today we're going to go way back. We're going to go back before he was called Paul. For as they say, his mama named him Saul. A good Jewish name, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to meet today. And so in a minute, we're going to corporately read some scripture. We're going to start with that typical end of life, almost unicorn and rainbows, coffee mug type scripture that at times we put on things and we just rest in that and we don't know the whole story. But after we read that, then we're going to go back and we're going to see the very beginning. We're going to see how it all started. And so when you leave here today, we're going to have gone through a process, hopefully, to together. I've said several times as, as we've opened up Scripture that Scripture can be used as a window and it can be used as a mirror. We're going to look through the window of Scripture at Paul. And then we're going to flip on the light and it's going to become a mirror. And we're going to have to use Scripture and what's happening with Paul now to then look at ourselves and challenge ourselves. So by the end of the day... As we see the transformational work of God in Saul, I want you to have done some internal work. Not sitting here passively, but you being part of this, working within yourself. I want you, just like Saul of Tarsus did, to recognize, to ask, and to decide for yourself. So, I want to invite you, if you're willing and able to stand as we read God's Word, we're going to be in two different passages today. We're going to be in 2 Timothy 4, and then we're going to flip over real quick to Acts 7. Now, we stand at Still City Church because we want to stand on the rock of God's Word. Listen to what the Word says. Unpack what the Word says. This holds me accountable, that it's not just what I want to say, but we want to handle the Word of God rightly and truly. So here we go, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. This is Paul writing, who was once saw, it says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so now we flip back to Acts 7. We go to where it started. The first time we meet Paul, before he was Paul, when he was named Saul, 
Acts 7, verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, Stephen that is, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul, though, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul... Ah, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. When we consider the end-of-life words, of hope that come flowing out of 2 Timothy 4. We like rest in those and we're like, we want those. But then we see Saul's introduction to us at the end of chapter 7 and it creates this almost whiplash. Like, holy moly, how do we get from the point Z from point A? Like, where, how did this happen? We see Saul heartily presiding over a ruthless murder of Stephen who preached one of the greatest sermons the Bible has recorded. And then not only did he do that, but then it's followed by words such as great persecution, ravaging, dragging, dragging not only men, but also purposely dragging women, which then has to lead you to believe there were probably children involved as well, and incarcerating them. In a second, you're going to hear murdering. How, how can this be the case? The Apostle Paul? The guy who wrote 20% of the words in the New Testament? Let's see what happens. So we're going to be in Acts 9 for the majority of our time today. So flip over to Acts 9. We're going to start out in verse 1. It says, Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he went to the great high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogues of Damascus. Damascus was about 150 miles away, pretty influential city in this area. What was he wanting to do with that? Well, he, he wanted those letters so that if he found any person belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was going to drag them 150 miles back to Jerusalem to prove his point to these people for following the way. Holy moly, Paul, Saul, what are you doing? And now we look through the window of Scripture into Saul and we're like, all right, we got a problem here. This is a bad dude right here. Man, he is ruthless. You know, I'd like to say that in in these explanations, just the few that we have, we see the worst of the bad. We see a guy who is characterized by just ruthless actions. What is going on? And as we look through this window, actually Paul reflected back with the mirror himself. He wrote in Romans 7, 18, he said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. For the willing to do good is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. 
So Paul sees it later in his life, but in the moment, man, he is ruthless. It's easy for us to tag him the worst of the bad. Nobody wants to have any dealings with him. But the other side of it is sometimes it depends on what side of the tracks you're standing on. We're looking at Saul and we're like, yeah, he's the worst of the bad. But if you're a Jewish male at this time and you're looking at Paul, you might actually categorize him as the best of the good. Because he actually is seemingly following the things that he's supposed to be following. Paul actually later in his life laid out for us in Philippians in a writing that he did to the church in Philippi in chapter 3, 4 through 6. Listen to what he says. If anyone can be confident, if anyone can be confident in their own goodness is basically what he's saying here. It's me. It's Paul. It's Saul. I can be confident in my own goodness. Wait, what? I was circumcised on the eighth day. All right? The Jewish law said circumcise a male on the, on the eighth day. Did he do it? Yep, check. He's good, right? It keeps going. It doesn't stop there. He said, I'm in the nation of Israel. I am in the nation that is God's chosen people. Check. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He's not of one of these tribes that's like a podunk tribe way out away from Jerusalem that's getting wishy-washy and not worshiping the God that's a bunch of farmers or whatnot. No, he's in the tribe of Benjamin. He's in one of the most influential, powerful tribes in Israel. Check. He says, as to the law, what is he? He's a Pharisee. If you were to take the first five books of your Bible and put them in scroll form, rip them out, tape them together, roll them up, which would be a bad example of the scrolls they had in that day, but if you want to do it, do it, I guess. But you would take the, 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 the law scroll, and you were to stab through it. It is said that a Pharisee would be able to tell you every single word that sword pierced through. That's how well he knew God's word. That's how much he wanted to accomplish the outward expression of the law that he had as a Jewish male at that time. Check. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous. He followed it. It wasn't just a sit-back, passive kind of thing. He wanted to do it. Check. And then as to the righteousness which is in the law, the outward expression of the law, you could bring no charge against him. He was found blameless. Check. So in some ways, he was the best of the good and he was the worst of the bad. Question here is we didn't have to turn on the light and allow scripture to be a mirror. Where are you? Where do you recognize yourself? Could you put yourself in the category of the worst of the bad? Could you say, Pastor, I'd, I don't even know why I'm here right now. I'll be honest. I, I, I can't even believe I'm here. There's no way I should be here. I'm not worthy to be here. You, you don't know, Pastor. You, you don't know what I've really done. You don't know who I really am. You don't know what I've really done. Man, I've gone too far. Could you be the best of the good? You recognize more on there. No, you got to realize, Pastor, I'm a pretty good person. I've got my life together. You see my Instagram? Like, I don't even have to use the filter. Like, it just looks good. I check all the boxes. 
I pray when I'm supposed to pray. I give when I'm supposed to give. I do what I'm supposed to do. I got it. And I'll be honest. I mean, I'm better than my neighbor. Better than my friend. I'm better than the person I'm sitting next to in church right now. No elbow nudges. Or you could just be the meeting of the middle. You could just be right there in the center. To be honest, I'm not good. I'm not bad. It just is what it is. I'm here. And I'll be honest, I don't even know if I care. You could be there. Where do you recognize yourself? It's easy for us to look at Paul. It's hard for us to look at ourselves. Let's keep going. Picking up in verse 3. Acts 9.3 says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? That Lord is just a term of respect. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, if we unpack the merits of this, we realize that this is an incredibly intense scene that is very unique in action. This blinding flash of light, this stop solid on the road. It actually tells us in Scripture that his traveling companions had no idea what was going on. They just heard, like, Paul conversing and something, and it was like, what is going on? This is very unique to Paul. But the implications of this scene should cause us to pause and respectfully ask for ourselves that who are you questioners? That who are you? Who are you? You know, chances are, when you're walking up Gladstone to your car here in a few minutes after church, you're not going to have this blinding light experience. But it doesn't mean that you haven't encountered a God who knows you personally, deeply and intimately. Now, if we just look at Scripture, as a pastor, that's what, I'm do, that's what I do, we look at Romans 1, 19 and 20. It says, That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they, us, are without an excuse. Now, you can stop me here and you can say, Pastor, listen now. I don't know if I believe all this stuff. That's just kind of like some Bible mumbo-jumbo kind of thing, like weirdness. And I get that. But I can actually go as far to make a crazy claim. And I would love to talk to you about this if you're willing. That there's actually enough scientific evidence and philosophical reasoning to generate a natural or general revelation of the existence of a theistic God. That there's enough science out there that leaves it open to be able to prove and show that there is a God. There's enough philosophical reasoning that if we unpack it and are willing to really dive into it, it's going to reveal to us that there is a theistic God. So if we are willing to go through that process, then, then we can use that evidence to then make an at least some level of excuse than to look at the specific revelation that we have received through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that came from the revealed God that we got through scientific reasoning and philosophical reasoning. Then we have to ask then, okay, who is this guy who blinded Paul? 
And there's a good chance that guy who blinded Paul is probably the same person in the form of God who is attempting to knock on the door of your heart right now. This person who is the blinding light and the booming voice in this story doesn't seem to give Paul time to answer the question. He doesn't give him time to go corroborate all the evidence and lay out all the scientific reasoning and pull apart all the philosophical reasoning. He answers him straight up like he'll do so often. Paul asks him the question, who are you? And he says flatly, I am Jesus. Now we got to understand something. Jesus, we hear the term and we've unpacked this before, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, Lord, all have very important meanings in it. Jesus is the historical name. It puts Jesus on the map of history. Purposefully puts him there. My grandfather, his name was John Henry Rumpel Sr. You can go Googling. All right, you'll find tax records. You'll find a couple house deeds. You'll find an obituary. It puts him on the map in history, but when you say John Henry Rumpel Sr. to me, it's not the guy that's on the tax deed. To me, it's this guy I used to call Big John. It's Big John who played football with me, who one day slipped and fell and had a bruise for like six months from playing football, and the next time he was still out there doing his thing, trying to juke me. It was the Big John who used to make me sandwiches, is what he called them. He's put peanut butter in a spaghetti. It was good. I ain't lying, like it for real. He had this big, he was from Charleston, South Carolina, born and bred, didn't graduate high school, and he had this good Charleston accent to him. He had this big laugh and this big personality. That's who Big John is to me. That's who John Henry Rumpel Sr. is to me. Well, for Saul, For Saul, when he said, it is me, it's Jesus who you are persecuting. Jesus wasn't just a historical figure to Saul. When he heard the response to his who are you question, it probably sounded in his head something a little bit like this. He said, I am Jesus, Saul. Remember me? I'm the Jewish carpenter who was born in Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, who your people thought they had killed just like those prophecies you have memorized so well said they would. I'm the one who rose again on the third day, just like the prophecy said I would. I'm the one who was at the beginning, just like your book, Genesis, said I was. I am the one who's building my church upon the foundation of the very law and prophets that you worship and you memorize all the time, just like was said I would do. And now you're persecuting me because those people who you're ravaging and dragging and murdering and incarcerating they're mine Saul they're mine this blew Saul's mind it took the historical feature of this this Jesus guy It made it personal and real to him. So we turn the light back on. We're now looking in the mirror. 
We have no excuse. She said that God's image is actually in us. We have God there. We've encountered him. We ask the question, who are you? What's his response? This is Jesus. Why are you blank? This is Jesus. Why are you being apathetic towards me? Why do you just not seem to care? This is, this is Jesus. Why do you keep re- stacking your religious efforts, thinking it's going to impress me? This is, this is Jesus. Why do you keep measuring your good deeds? Who are you? This is Jesus. Why do you keep disqualifying yourself? Do you not understand that I came to this world to die for you on the cross, to shed my blood for you? I long for you. I love you. This is Jesus. Why do you keep putting yourself down? You're sufficient for me. This is Jesus. Why do you keep ignoring me? When you ask that question, that who are you question, and you get the response, what does it sound like in your head? What does it sound like to you? Let's keep going. Here for a few verses, a lot happens, and we see Saul was led by the hand of the people. By the hand of, uh, of uh, I'm sorry, Saul was led by the hand into the city of Damascus. He remained blind for three days in Damascus. And this, the place, this Damascus place was where Saul was going to with the whole intention. He had a clear vision of unleashing his powerful wrath. But in this very place, he stumbled into it blindly with the help of his dumbfounded traveling companions. For three days, Saul didn't eat or drink, but it says all he did was stay at this guy named Judas' house, and he prayed. Now, I struggle to think here that in Paul's prayer, his physical blindness was his biggest concern. I'll say that again, in his prayers and being blind for three days, not eating and drinking as he's praying, I don't think his physical blindness was his greatest concern. But in the meantime of all this happening, the Lord told a man who was a follower of Jesus in Damascus named Ananias to go to Saul and lay his hands on him so that he could see. Ananias was reluctant. Imagine that. All right? Think about it. You could go, you you were told to go and find this notorious Christian hater who checked all the best of the good boxes and all the worst of the bad boxes, and you're going to lay hands on him. Now, we got a southern term that goes like, oh, we about to lay hands on people, and it's not like like religious, you know? Miss Debbie tells me that sometimes when I say funny things to her. I'm going to lay hands on you, child, is what she'll say. But Ananias here is told to go lay hands on Saul. There's a good chance that Saul had a hand in doing some serious damage to Ananias' family 
or friends or colleagues or acquaintances or friends. It was crazy. Ananias says, nah, hard pass. I'm good. (laughs) But thankfully, thankfully, Ananias went. He obeyed the Lord's command, and that's where we pick up in verse 17. And it says, so Ananias departed, followed directions, and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said to him, Brother Saul, a Greek term of endearment, Can you imagine the compassion it took to say that? Can you imagine what it took inside of Ananias? We don't know much more about Ananias than than this particular story. But I'm always thankful for people who are willingly, willingly and humbly able to accept assignment from the Lord. So he says to him, Brother Saul... The Lord, the Lord Jesus, here Lord is not just a term of respect, but it's a term of I am laying everything out before the Lord. He is the one, the Lord Jesus, my Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me this that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, A lot of times in Scripture, it's intentionally vague, and I think this is one of those times where the author, which is Luke, leaves it intentionally vague. What happened in Saul? Once Ananias said this, what what started to happen? He obviously recognized where he was or who he was. We see in several of his writings where he actually laid this out, all the good and all the bad, and we heard him ask the who are you question. We heard the response, why are you persecuting me? But what decision did Paul make here? What did he think? What did he do? What happened? What formula did he use? Come on, Luke, give me something. But look what we see in Acts 9.18. It says, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. And he got up. And he was baptized. There was some type of decision made. We're not sure exactly what happened in Paul's fervent prayer while he was blind. But based on what happened, something, some type of decision was made. The very thing that was causing Paul's physical blindness left him. The scales fall off. But we don't see him exclaim, oh, thank God I can see. Remember what we said earlier, the physical blindness is probably the least of his concerns. We actually see an immediate step to show that his spiritual blindness to the person and mission of Jesus Christ was cured. Paul decided for himself through the corroboration of the evidence that in fact, Jesus is Lord. Paul came to the conclusion that the one whom he was persecuting was the very one who paid the ultimate price to save him from all of the bad and from all of the good that he thought he was doing. And just that fact was enough to change everything. As you see in Acts 9, 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is who he said he is. That's him. 
And that's Paul's decision. What about yours? We've taken some time today to recognize within ourselves who we are, where we fall on the continuum. We've considered the answer to Jesus' response to our who are you question. Now it's time for you to decide, for you to consider. C.S. Lewis has this great line. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, all right, your will be done. There's no indecision here. An indecision is still a decision. We believe that everyone is faced with making this decision, this eternal decision to actually clarify the fact that Jesus is Lord. What do you think? Is this Jesus, the one who met Saul and changed his life, is he worth following and surrendering to as Lord? Or will you simply roll the dice on facing God with anything other than the finished and completed and sufficient work of Christ Jesus. I said earlier, Jesus desperately wants you to decide to follow him. As James said, the law of liberty. As Peter said, becoming who you already are in Christ. He longs for you. So much so that he gave his life for you. He was willing to pay the ultimate price on your behalf. We have to decide. So as we close, I want to point you to to a song that you probably know really well. It's probably one of the most well-known hymns in all of the world. John Newton, written by John Newton. He was an Englishman in the 1700s. And like Saul and all of us, he was faced with this decision. He's probably closer to Saul's world than ours. He actually traded slaves as his career. And in that time of seeing humanity at some of its lowest points in all of history, as his ship was sailing on the sea to go pick up more, to remove the humanity in people, a storm hit his ship to the point that it almost threw him overboard, threw part of his crew overboard. Death was imminent. And from that time, and during that time, he recognized who he was, and he realized he was in need of a Savior. Newton was introduced to the one that died for him at the pinnacle of him being the worst of the bad and attempting to be the best of the good. And it was learning of this indescribable gift, this indescribable grace, this unmerited favor, this unending love, this incredible mercy that he penned a hymn that we've sung a thousand times. Amazing grace. This is how the words go. Just the first verse, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And he uses the illustration of today, 
I was blind. Not physically. I was spiritually blind. But now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. So Paul was indwelled with the Holy Spirit and wrote, like I said, 20% of the New Testament words and almost half of the New Testament books. And he went through a very similar process that we all have to go through. Recognition of where we are and what our need is. Asking the question, who are you? And then he made a decision. Is Jesus Lord Or is he just some liar and some lunatic? And so that's the challenge before you today. If you'd love to talk about that, I I will be in the back here in just a little bit. Um, We're going to do a time of communion. I'm going to invite David up to lead us through a communion reflection. Um, And we're going to, to actually take the physical semblance of what Jesus Christ did for us, the same symbol that that Paul accepted in this time. If there's any prayers that you may have, I would love to pray for you. Uh, We've said before, praying, those that are followers of Jesus that are praying are powerful. If you're prayerless, you're powerless. And so I'm going to pray, and then David's going to take us through a communion reflection. Heavenly Father, man, you're so good. Lord, I thank you that even in my best times, it is just but filthy rags when it's laid before you, which means if I can't even earn it through my good, then I'll never lose it through my bad. And Lord, I'm gonna rest in that. So Lord, I pray that each of us today will recognize, will ask, and will decide. If that's a decision that we've made before, then great. But man, the gospel seed is so important to be planted every single day. So Lord, as we take of your body, take of your blood, Lord, let us be reminded of the sacrifice, the realness of the sacrifice that you did for us. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.